This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera, where we celebrate Bill Hannah, Joe Barbera, and the thousands with them whose entertainment keeps entertaining generations. I'm Greg Airbar, thanking you for joining me, and I'm here with my special guest, a historian of animation, or is it an historian? I don't know. Uh, author of numerous books on the subject, professor at California Institute of the Arts, also known as CalArts, Jerry Beck. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're going to talk about Hannah and Barbera and the world before their company in a number of ways. That's hence the title, Hannah and Barbera, as well as all the other people. There were great people who worked with them oh, yeah. in their earliest careers, way, way back in the 30s. And many of them stayed with them all the way through. Yeah. It's so funny. We we think of Hannah and Barbera. We think of their TV cartoons. We think of the MGM cartoons where they were kind of roommates, not really, with Tex Avery. And yet the Tex Avery cartoons have their own feel, their own cult following, their own, you know, uh, flavor. And the Hannah Barbera cartoons have their own following and flavor. And yet these geniuses were under one roof and even myself, I don't think of the fact that Hanna-Barbera were with Avery for so long. Uh, and, and clearly some of Avery rubbed off on Hannah and Barbera, but they had their own thing that it still endures today. People still love the Hanna-Barbera, MGM, Tom and Jerry cartoons so much. And I really don't accept when anyone else had done them later, like Gene Deitch or Chuck Jones. Um and everyone since, including the people running Warner Brothers today, when they make a new Tom and Jerry, they make it intentionally in the style of Hannah and Barbera at MGM. I mean, because that's what people think of when they think of Tom and Jerry. And every time somebody's tinkered with it, audiences react in a negative way and they don't like it. That's true. There was something special there, something special in the air. 
and honestly, let me also say this. I love pointing this out to my students and to everybody that the Tom and Jerry, the MGM, Hanna-Barbera, Tom and Jerry cartoons are the only, uh, well, okay, I'm going to put an asterisk on this. I'll get right back to the asterisk. But really, in the big picture of the world, up until recently with me, TV running old cartoons, like five years ago, they were the only classic cartoons still run with a regular program on the Cartoon Network. The Looney Tunes were not there five years ago. They were they might have been relegated to Boomerang or in some later, you know, three o'clock in the morning. But the Tom and Jerry cartoons were still rating successes for uh Cartoon Network. They still are. And they're still ratings now they're rating successes for Me TV and what they're doing with classic cartoons. It's it's fantastic. Um, as much as I love the Looney Tunes, as much as people love them, um, uh, the, the Tom and Jerry cartoons, I think there's in some ways are even bigger with the general audience because they're the best of both worlds. They're classic. They have full animation. The characters have personality. Yeah. The humor transcends the times they were made in. They're not as uh, stationed to the forties and fifties as some of the other studios were so it's pretty amazing what they accomplished i mean they won seven academy awards for the tom and jerry's more than meryl streep and <laughs> they worked <laughs> with people like you mentioned some of the animators i mean frank tashlin was one of their friends back in the, in the van buren days and obviously in the 40s and 50s they worked with uh, gene kelly yeah and many other uh celebrities esther williams and things like that they had an incredible career. They had the Hollywood career in animation that I actually think, well, I was going to say, I actually think Walt Disney would have wanted if he didn't become Walt Disney. Yeah, they were in the big studio system. I mean, Walt turned that down intentionally because he didn't want to be owned by a studio. You know, he didn't want what happened with Oswald to happen again to him. Yeah. So he went independent. And of course, being Walt Disney, doing the things he did, being independent worked out much better for him. He got to work with major celebrities all the time and be a major part of the movie industry. Let's let's talk about you mentioned several of the reasons why and that's kind of the subject here. Why are Tom and Jerry so eternally popular? Because on the surface people would say there were lots of cat and mouse teams even the other people at MGM, when Hannah and Barbera threw the idea out, said, that's so trite, that's so overdone. Why are Tom and Jerry special? Why is it not just about uh, cartoon action? I'm not going to say the V word, because it is more than that. Well, I used to tell my students, my animation students, um, sometimes I would get the question, you know, I'm afraid of pitching. Uh, pitching to Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or Netflix because they might steal my idea. When I hear that, and I've heard it many times, I go, well, first of all, that's not going to happen. And here's the reason. And this explains a little bit about Tom and Jerry. I go, you can go in and you can explain an idea to them, but here's the deal. You could say, I'm going to do a show that's about a cat chasing a mouse. And every student in this room if I assign that you come up with a show of a cat chasing a mouse, every one of you is going to have a different take on that. The cat and mouse is going to look different. Some of your takes will be awful. Some of them will be fantastic. But you know what? None of them are going to be the same. You can say a cat and a mouse, and it is a trite idea. It's been done before, but it's what Hannah and Barbera brought to it. 
the timing by Hannah. It's the gags by Barbara. It's the funny drawings. You know, uh, they talk about violence. I'm sorry I used the V word, but (laughs) (laughs) they talk about violence in these cartoons. It's really slapstick is what it is. It's exaggerated slapstick that obviously you've heard this before. It dates back to silent comedy. It's what they used to do in silent comedy. It's an exaggeration of real life. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not really meant to be this or that. It's just to be, it's more of a feeling what it feels like. You you want the audience to feel not the hurt, but the almost hurt that it came that close it's both hilarious and it's funny. It's more funny. In fact, let me mention people always talk about the different various cats and mice or cats and birds, you know, Tweety and Sylvester. Herman and Catnip. Obviously at Herman and Catnip at Paramount. The problem at Herman and Catnip is that the people at Famous Studios are contracted to make cartoons. Tom and Jerry were huge. They were copying that formula. But they didn't understand what Hannah and Barbera were doing. It they were doing it their way. Yeah. But it wasn't what Hannah and Barbera were doing. They didn't understand that the drawings were funny, the timing was funny. The funny part is missing from the famous studio stuff. They just think, oh, it must be because you know Jerry just hit Tom with a hammer. That's what's funny. So we got to do that, you know, more, and that people will love our cartoons. I always felt that about the Three Stooges. I swear, if you watch, I love the Stooges. I love all the Stooges. I especially love Shep. But if you really look at the Stooges, the Curlies are better for a variety of reasons. But by the time they got to Shep, the budgets were severely cut. And the thinking by Jules White or somebody on high was, as long as you have the the hurt humor, the hit humor, the, the slapstick humor, we'll be fine. And it's not as funny with Shemp. I love Shemp, but I, I actually think it's funny because they think it's funny, you know, because they think it's funny. I actually begin to find I, I'm laughing more at the executives and writers who think this is funny than I am at the actual gag, you know, pulling Larry's hair out of his head, you know, hitting Shemp with a broom or it actually comes off quite painful. And in some ways, when they're eating, you know, they do a lot of food gags where they eat, you know, soap or drink turpentine and that kind of thing. It's funny for a split second, but to see it actually being done is not that funny. But in Tom and Jerry, it's kind of, it's the way it's done. Yeah. Like you said, timing. It's the gags that Barbara, and can you explain what Barbara did and what Hannah did? Because they really did do two separate things together. Yeah, they were a perfect team because they both excelled at different parts of making a cartoon. You know, maybe someone like Avery probably uh, was the both of them combined. But Han and Barbera were able to do great things where they their specialty could really be pushed and or highlighted. I believe Joe wrote most of the stories and really came up with a lot of the gags. If you've ever seen his uh, storyboards, let's call them that, the storyboards I've seen, they look like he took a blank piece of paper or a page out of a blank notebook you know, with no lines in it and did little little comic strips of what the action would be in that film. You know, this would be the funny thing and that would be the funny thing. My guess is that they probably did create boards later and then they probably, the staff and and Bill went over it. But Joe is basically the driver of the funny of what would go on. Yeah, almost like an outline, like a treatment kind of. 
Yeah. Of course, um, Hannah, um, you know, would look at this almost with an analytical eye and create what we call the timing. I'm not an animator, so I, in the, in the past, might not know what that even meant. But I have, uh, throughout my time, uh, visited, not only visited studios, I've lived with people who are animators and timers and things like that. So I kind of picked up what they do and how they do it. And it's a true art. And it's basically making sure that the gag reads, you know, whatever the gag is, an expression on a face, you know, a bowling ball falling on someone's head, whatever it is that it reads it's underlined and the audience is it's communicated to the audience and it's done on a frame by frame basis. You know, you've all heard of an exposure sheet. We tend to think of exposure sheets for dialogue when there's a cartoon with dialogue uh, you know, you have the actor speak it and someone breaks down the actual recording into frame by frame on a giant sheet called an exposure sheet, which shows the animator that when he says the word, hello, that the ha is on frame 10 and L in the middle is, you know, frame 20 and low is frame 25. It breaks it down so the animator can make sure that he hits that with his drawings. Um, but what about cartoons with no dialogue like Tom and Jerry? Well, they're just as reliant as timing as anything else. Yeah. Because someone has to figure out how quickly this has to happen and when it happens and that sort of thing and know enough about how the film plays in a theater to know if the audience is going to read it and get it. You know, back in those days, as you know, from musicals and other kinds of movies, and even for cartoons, they would build in pauses after certain gags and things because they knew the audience was going to react, have a laugh. That's why you hear silences. It's why you hear a silence in some old movies and you wonder why that's there. Exactly. So that, that sort of thing has to be taken into account back in the films that, that these were made. By the way, that brings me to a whole other topic, which is the whole theatrical cartoon experience. Most people grew up watching Tom and Jerry on television, and we're used to the Tom and Jerry being on TV or VHS or DVD or whatever. You know, But as we all know, these were made for theaters. They were not aimed at children, although children could enjoy them and did enjoy them. And there were Saturday matinees and things, but they were aimed at the full movie going audience. They were MGM cartoons and MGM had a prestige about it as a studio. They wanted at all times, way back to Flip the Frog and uh, Harmon and Ising in the mid thirties, they wanted a certain prestige with their cartoons. They wanted to be felt and known as perhaps the best cartoons on the market. They kind of knew that Disney was it. They tried their best to hire Disney. They hired uh, Byworks, they hired Harmon and Ising because they wanted to be Disney in the worst way. And luckily for them, they luck. it's all luck because by the time 1940 rolled around and Harmon and Ising were kind of old hat at that point, nobody was imitating Disney anymore as Harmon and Ising had been. You know, they, their happy harmonies were the closest thing to silly symphonies as anybody could have. Yeah, they really were. <laughs> and so by the time 1940 rolls around, all the other studios, or most of the other studios, Lance, Warner Brothers, Columbia, they're all going in the direction of humor, laughs. Warner Brothers was the pioneer of that, that kind of modern humor, current day humor, a fast-paced humor. That was where things were going. They, the studios, the other studios realized, we can't keep up with a guy who's doing Snow White, Pinocchio, and Fantasia. 
and making wink and blinking and nod and the brave little Taylor. I mean, we just can't keep up with this guy. We we tried our best during the 30s. Uh, so the Warners showed that there was a new formula. There was a new way to go, which was humor. And all of them basically copied that. And Harmon and Ising began to do that in some of their cartoons in the late 30s, 39 and 40. Um, you know, The Lonesome Stranger is is one of their cartoons they did, which I think is it's a hilarious spoof of The Lone Ranger. Yeah. And they tried their best to do that sort of thing. But they kind of had the, each of the studios had to it had to come to the point where it was like, we have to decide who we are and kind of stick with the or eventually evolve to. It's just like Disney. Disney is at its best when it's true to what Disney is. Yeah. It's the same thing with MGM. Well, MGM realized way early everybody did that part of keeping up with the joneses or the disney's you know working on theatrical cartoons was also having a character or characters that would be famous famous enough that they could be merchandised a la disney um you know one of the things that you mentioned that harmonizing we're doing with the happy harmonies yeah. doing exactly the same thing as silly symphonies right they actually didn't they actually make was it Babies for walt disney um yeah um you know the wonderful thing about walt is we all dig into uh him some people as you know uh erroneously publish and besmirch his reputation with this or that but yeah. the more i've dug in the more I see what a nice guy he was. He didn't seem to hold a grudge against anyone. He did that that wonderful little drawing we've seen of Oswald and Mickey. I think he gave that to Walter Lance. Based on what I know, after he, I don't know when he got over any ill feeling with Charles Mintz, but I'm under the impression that there was no ill feeling, at least after a year or two or three. It seems like he didn't have any reason to hold a grudge. He was the kingpin. He proved his point. He said that in an interview. Uh, Randy Thornton played some of these, I think, at the D23 Expo. Yeah. He said to um, yeah. the guy who co-wrote the biography, My Dad Walt, with um, with Diane, Pete Martin. Pete Martin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He actually said, I move on. And he said, every one of those things ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me. And I don't really dwell on it. And I think a lot of that image came from erroneous books, like the book that Richard Schickel wrote and things like that. And there are accuracies and inaccuracies, but, you know, you can counter almost every accusation with 10 things to the contrary and one of them is that you know and i'll talk about this in another episode the whole myth about him saying mickey mouse will never be in another at another studio that's just not true he actually helped gene kelly yeah in addition to uh mints and uh you know i don't think he ever had a problem with walter lance well he understood the situation walter lance Mm -hmm. was really hired by carl emley and carl emley own the rights to the characters and it was just the situation that was mm-hmm. now at the same time he obviously forgave uh iWorks who left the studio and you know in the beginning there was quite the betrayal in a way uh they did have an argument but that was all buried 10 years later and uh of course was with the studio way past disney's passing similarly Harmon and ising who were colleagues from uh from kansas city I don't think he had any, he would, they were Mm-mm. top lieutenants with Disney uh, when he was making Alice and making Oswald. And um, they signed 
the contract with Mintz, as did everybody but Abai Works. Uh, you know, he didn't have anything against them. It was a situation that that is, in theory, when that contract was over, I haven't really read much about this. I suppose Harmon and Eisen could have come back to Disney uh, if they wanted to. But you know what? They they wanted to compete with Disney. They wanted to have their own business like Disney did, and that's documented because they were trying to do it in the Kansas City days. They were trying to do it, you know, all along. They were trying to have their own business a la Disney. Yeah. And uh, they finally, you know, hooked up with Leon Schlesinger, Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, and then the Happy Harmonies for MGM. And I don't think Disney had any any uh, negative feeling toward them at all. And not only that, from afar, across town, he could see what they were doing and how their films were coming close uh, technically, ink, paint, technical ways, design, maybe character animation. They were the closest. Uh, you know, people say Max Fleischer was Disney's rival, and he was, and their studio was, uh, for a variety of different reasons than uh, Harmon and Ising. Harmon and Ising were Disney's other rivals because they were trying to match Disney on a technical and artistic level, whereas Fleischer wasn't doing that. Fleischer was was matching Disney in other ways with characters, popular characters, just a different take. Anyway, well, that's, an, that's a conversation for another time. But Harmon and Ising, I don't think it was any bad blood at all. And thus, when it came time that he was working on uh, Snow White, and the deadline for its premiere was approaching. They needed all hands on deck, and they maybe couldn't get all the silly symphonies out, and they needed help with ink and paint. And who would he turn to? He, the only other possibility in Hollywood was Harmon and Ising. And Harmon and Ising Studio did ink and paint for Disney, and they did, of course, the animation of a cartoon called Mer Babies. And that's never been a secret, although Disney didn't have uh, credits printed on screen, you know, back in those days. But anybody asking for the credit information, and I say that as someone who worked on those Mice and Magic, that book I worked on with Leonard Malton, uh, the only studio that was 100% cooperative and had information to share was the Disney studio. They had an archive. They kept track. They kept records. It wasn't true of Warner Brothers. It wasn't true of any other studio there's no record keeping but in the case of disney they were very happy they were very you know oh that cartoon was directed by you know george stallings or george gordon or somebody like that and they were very forthcoming with the production credits on all of the films as you can see in uh, jb kaufman's and russell merritt's great book on silly symphonies which they mention all the credits the thing is disney was in control of the boards the story you know it was a disney production but they were able to, and what's interesting to me at that period, and it hasn't been fully explored as far as I'm concerned, is the whole period around there where uh, Harmon and Ising were having an issue with uh, with MGM, and they were actually let go. MGM wanted to start their own studio in-house, and that's when they did. They started without Harmon and Ising, and they, there was one year, as you may know, the year that I believe that they made Babies was the year when Frizz Freeling was brought over from Warner Brothers, and they did the Captain and the Kids cartoons for one year. When those didn't work out, they went back to harmonizing and harmonizing, uh, having a hard time finding another you know, studio set up like they had with MGM. They didn't realize how good they had it, but they did do the film for Disney and they started to make cartoons. They started to board and uh, do pre-production on a couple of cartoons that they hoped they would show them. In fact, as far as I know, again, I'm, I'm a little sketchy on this. They, I believe they showed the boards 
and pitch art and things to uh, Roy Disney and Walt Disney for a couple of cartoons like The Little Goldfish, I think was the name of one of them. And I'd have to look in my books right now for my reference. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. But I think there were a few films that uh, maybe Goldilocks and the Three Bears was another one. These are films that they came up with the uh, boards and things. Disney rejected them as silly symphonies. They didn't want to do them. They Oh, so they became MGM. They became MGM cartoons. They're the first I never one. knew that. That's cool. Yeah, the first ones that they did when they went back to MGM were these ones that they were pitching to Disney. And they, they're very Disney-like. Yeah. And or Disney light. They're very much in that that vein. They also now they were MGM employees. They had previously been their own studio. They had been running their own studio. Now they're they're employees of MGM. And this is where they begin to come up with the idea of teaming timers and board artists and other people of different talents together to see who might make good directors in their stead because they just felt they could move up in the line of what they were doing. They were the supervisors, the producers, maybe they didn't have to direct every cartoon. So uh, they, that's what they did. And that's how uh, Hannah and Barbara came together. Uh, They were pretty much matched and teamed by, I believe Rudolph Ising. In fact, uh, I believe, and you can correct me and I'm so sorry. I'm not looking at any notes or anything. I believe that Hannah directed a few cartoons. He did. Yes, he did. He absolutely did. He did. A, he did a, t- a Captain and the Kids, and he. I believe he directed a couple of them. That he did one called Two Spring, which Two you Spring, can get right. on the Boomerang app. He also wrote songs, so he probably wrote the song in that. Well, I can, I can totally see why they would team him with Barbara, who you know, a as they say, brash young New Yorker. Uh, who had a completely different sense of humor, who had sold cartoons to magazines, which it may have been harder to do that back then as it is today. Today, it's very hard because there's hardly any magazines that run, you know, spot cartoons as they used to. But but it was very difficult. It was quite prestigious to be able to do that back in those days. And of course, Barbara was uh, working at the Van Buren studio. He had worked at Terry Tunes in New York. Yeah. And you know what? I, I want to talk about a little of that, too. So I'm going to I'm going to bring you back for okay. another exciting episode. So <laughs> next episode called What Does Jerry Know? Or I can already <laughs> answer that. I don't know anything. <laughs> you could have fooled me. Tune in next time, won't you? For another exciting episode of the fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera. And we want to uh, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to help me make more of them, please click subscribe, tell your friends, run around outside flapping your arms. And anyway, you can visit me at gregovision.com or on the Fantastic World of Hannah and Barbara podcast Facebook page. There's several Fantastic World pages, and I like them a lot. So this one has podcast on it, just to avoid confusion. Thanks for listening. We are the real Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady Brady Bros. Bros.